Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. We have bartender superstar Alba Huerta of Julep coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my good friend, local restaurant consultant, Nathan Ketchum. Nathan, two weeks in a row. Thanks for doing this. Welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Glad nature has not uh, succeeded in murdering me yet. Yeah, the, the rain helped the pollen a little bit, which is always nice. Yeah, for at least a day or two, but it's back. It is uh, has, has It has its knives out. It is actively attempting to murder me but i'm still here screw your nature <laughs> good to know all right before we dive into the actual news of the week i wanted to have a brief conversation with you based on something that we talked about off air at dinner a couple of days ago you recounted a recent experience where you went to a counter service restaurant and were presented with tipping options that ranged from 15 to 25%, which seems like a lot to me. So Nathan, I wanted to, now let's stipulate, maybe you'll, maybe you'll disagree with me. Full service dining where you are seated and a, and a server brings you your food. You order from a menu, the whole spiel, 20%. Yes. So, yeah, obviously this this will get some traction. People are very passionate about tipping. People are very passionate about tipping and with fast casual and counter service, everybody wants to know what an appropriate amount to tip is in these different environments. Now you're someone who has worked in restaurants, you're someone who has owned restaurants. And typically when I talk to people who have worked at restaurants, they are more generous tippers than the members of the public who have not worked at restaurants. Yeah, so my standard tip for a sit-down full-service restaurant is minimum, you know, 20% post-tax. Uh, um, and that's just kind of my standard, oh, I just had service, let me put it down. And it's normally rounded up pretty decently. If I had great service, it goes up from there pretty, pretty heavily. And if, you know, any sort of discounts or anything like that, I can get, you know, a lot more generous if they um, kick you a couple dishes, you'll factor that in. Yeah, they, they normally get the dishes paid back in tip. Um, the I, could, I can only think of one time in the last several years that I've even tipped 15%, and that was, frankly, a giant F you to that particular server. That was me saying, like, hey, screw you, guy. You're only getting 50%. You were a dick. Um, right. 15% for a full-service experience, totally outdated, basically unacceptable. Yeah, well, that was my, like, middle finger to that guy. Like, you know, he may not have understood it, but to me, like, right. that was thought, me. He just thought you shorted him. Yeah, that was me, you know, just standing out the window with, you know, double double fingers blaring. I, w I, I had a bad experience. Um, so so 20% full service, that's my, like, just bottom barrel standard. Uh, my dad is a 20%er a, a pre-tax. He's, he's a firm believer in pre-tax, and that, I think, is a fair fair belief to have. Right, because that's what you're actually paying for. Yeah, you, you know, right. tax, tipping on tax is something that people are very passionate about also. So that, that I think, is, an, you know, if that's what you do, feel free to do that. I think servers would disagree, uh, but I do it because it's the easiest thing for me to do. Hey, I see this big number at the bottom. I just, you know, double it and... All right, now let me now let me ask you one other thing. What if you get like a really expensive bottle of wine, like a two three hundred dollar bottle of wine? Are you tipping twenty percent, including that bottle of wine, or just on the other stuff? See, I tend to, but that's again, we're talking about the fact that I, you know, I worked in the industry. I've I've done virtually every job you can imagine in the industry, so I'm going to be a little more generous with my with my tipping. Yeah, generally, my attitude about that is. If you can afford the $200 bottle of wine, you can afford the tip on the $200 bottle of that, wine. That's kind of where I'm at. My, you know, my parents are, are older people, um, and they even tip on the wine. They, they, they never even thought to not tip on the wine. Their thought was, when well, you buy it, it's part of 
It's part of your dinner. You tip on it. Um, I I kind of see the point where people don't, you know, they they want to lower their tip. But again, I mean, you're 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 buying it. It's kind of part of the right. The restaurant has stored it and they've served it to you in nice glassware, and they've presumably this is not like if you're if you're buying a, especially an expensive bottle of wine, this is not something that you could just walk into a store and buy off a shelf. Right, yeah. that they've they've gone out of their way to secure this wine for you. Well, yeah, well, that's that's something we can have a whole another conversation on. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's another topic. But yeah, the uh, my opinion on that is just that the server, you know, you have kind of like a, a implied contract with the server that you're gonna, you know, tip them on the work that they do, and if you're gonna, you know, have them give the service for a fancy wine, then you should tip them on that. Right, and then the other thing is. If you don't tip them on, like they are certainly going to tip out to the sommelier and the busboy and whoever else based on the value of that bottle of wine. So whether or not you tip them on it, it's going to cost them something anyway. Yeah, you said we're going to have a short conversation on this. We could have like four podcasts. I know we on. could do what we could do a whole pod, but but I did want to get. I I just wanted to sort of explore this because frankly the news of the week is a little bit light, and we keep having versions of this conversation privately. Well, yeah, it's it's the fast casual that that tends it's the to, fast casual that really ticks you off. So, so I, I've I've said this multiple times. It's the it's the tablet point of sale systems that have that have caused the change in the tipping with fast casuals. Because it used to be you'd go to a fast casual, they would take your order, and you you know they'd give you the printout receipt. It would be twenty bucks, and you tip them a dollar or two. Right. There would be either a line on the on the credit card slip. Or more frequently, just a jar. Yeah, and and that would be fine. You know, they they took your order. I don't mind giving you giving them a dollar, you know, for punching some some keys on, and then you know doing a one eighty degree turn to take that tray and put it on the on the bar. Like, hey, I'll give them a dollar. I'd say fifty percent of the people don't even give them the dollar. Now uh, there's a there's a blaring, hey, tip me twenty percent when you go to the next screen. To tip them the dollar, you have to hit the other, you know, it's normally 15. Yeah, you have to manually enter that in. Yeah, it's, it's normally, usually a percentage. Yeah. Some places will have a 10% line, um, but, I mean, many places now it's 15, 20, and 25%. Um, and then, yeah, to, to get to the, the to do anything less, you have to hit manual or other and then type it in yourself. And they know what you're doing. You get the dirty look. Um, you're slowing down the line. Um, I know tips at fast casual restaurants have gone up drastically since implementing uh, the tablet POS systems with this, um, you know, tipping thing. Right. So essentially, these restaurants are trying to guilt people into tipping in a situation where a the the front of house staff is not paid the tip minimum wage; they're paid some full wage that's above minimum wage, and also in a situation where people previously didn't tip more than a couple of bucks at a time. Yeah, so here, here's another uh, contention of mine. Most fast casual places, I'd say five years ago, paid considerably more than minimum wage. They would start their their uh, cashiers out at, say... Um, Ten bucks an hour. Yeah, two or three dollars more than minimum wage. Because those are the guys... You know, those were the servers. Those were the people that represented the restaurant. They gave the best service. Um, and then the, the tipping was really meant to... If there were were any form of bussers or people like that that did clean the tables, they, that was meant to, you know, give them a few extra bucks an hour and and maybe give the the cashiers a little bit extra. Uh, now I talk to people that work in these restaurants all the time, and they're making flat minimum wage. And not only that, you know, we see restaurants set up all the time, and we've had many conversations on this. And I don't want to call anyone out in particular, but people are now setting their restaurants up to where their cooking staff is part of that line that you go through so they can pay their cooking staff more than they are, excuse me, they pay their cooking staff less than they would have in, you know, just five years ago, but their cooking staff is now eligible for part of that tips. So their cooking staff now makes minimum wage or, or nine or $10 an hour when they would have made 15 back in the day. Okay. So, so if we can agree that say, a cashier who just, like at a coffee shop, who just punches the register. Well, coffee shops are different. Hold on. A cashier who just punches a register and takes your order, that's like a couple of bucks in the tip. Now, what about a barbecue joint 
or a poke place or something like that where they're assembling the order in front of you. There's a guy who cuts the meat and a guy who scoops the sides and all that stuff, and they're splitting those tips. What do you what do you tip typically in that environment? So, see again, my problem is twenty percent is just so natural to me. I tip twenty percent, and then I'm mad at myself later because I spent thirty bucks and then I tip you know six for I'm not sure what I tipped on because I'll go to a different barbecue place and they don't accept tips. Or, you know, I'm, I'm tipping uh, someone to essentially prepare my food when in 90% of restaurants you don't tip someone to prepare your food. They just get paid. Right. But now it's like part of the business model for... It, it's part of the business model. People want to pay less and they want the uh, employees to be subsidized by tips. And hey, if I, w- if I owned a fast casual restaurant, I'd be doing it too. Um, I just don't know how long that's going to be sustainable before either people start getting annoyed or, frankly, the whole industry might change and and everyone might do that. Right. Because, like, so when I go and get a bagel, as I am want to do, and they toast it and spread the cream cheese or the butter on it, whatever, I feel like, you know, that bagel costs, like, a buck and a half. Maybe I get a soda or a coffee with it. Say I'm in for four bucks, like, I'm giving them a dollar on top of that to do those things as a tip, which winds up being 20% or better, but it's still only a dollar. I feel okay about that. Yeah. It's all over the place. Um, Interestingly enough, you think about places like Chick-fil-A, Raising Cane's, In-N-Out Burger. Right. Shake Shack. Shake Shack. They actually pay better per hour than most of these fast casual places that charge more than those places. Um, they pay their employees better, but they don't accept tips. So these other places pay less and then subsidize the employees by the tips. So not only are you paying more at most of these places, but then you're tipping on top of it to help subsidize all these employees. It's, it's just something you have to think about. And it's something I, I'm, I complain about um, not all the time, but I'll go to some place, I'll spend 30 bucks at a fast casual restaurant, and then I'll tip 20 to 25%, frankly, just out of autopilot. Right, just on a reflex, basically. And, and there are some fast casual places where I think that's fine. You know, they'll bring the food to you. They'll ask you if you want refills. They'll clean your table for you. They'll pick up your plates. Those places that do enough to kind of earn a better tip, um, you know, for people who don't want to tip 20%, that's, that's the 15 percenters or, or whatever you want to do. Um, again, right. I, I don't right. think let's, there's a... Let's single out a place that does this really well. Corkscrew Barbecue is uh, a fast, ca- kind of a hybrid fast casual setup. But when you tip, obviously they're assembling the order. You have to pick it up, but then they're great about refills. They're great about checking in on people. They do extra stuff for you. I feel really good about tipping 15 or even 20% in that environment. Yeah, they do great. Polly's does pretty well. I don't, Polly's doesn't, you got to get your own refills. They do. Polly's yeah. Can. You do have to get your own refills. Um, but then, you know, I'll go to other places where, um, you know, you're, you're legitimately only, the only thing they do is take your order. You have to, you know, pick up your own food and put it in the little basket. You get your own drinks, you get your own ketchup, you get your own everything. And they're still, you know, they're still asking for 20% right there on the screen. And in my mind, I'm like, what did you do to earn this 20%? I mean, there's no bussers. There's there's no anything. If there's a busser in the fast casual restaurant, I feel a lot better about tipping higher. Because you know that he's going to get it. He's going to get it, and that guy deserves it. Because a lot of time there's one guy for the whole restaurant. That, that guy, I frankly just want to give him cash, but I know that I know he'd probably get fired for it. Um, but, man, in places where, and I don't want to call anyone out specifically. I wish you would. Yeah, I know you wish. That's why you did this whole thing. But... Uh, just get you all spinned up and let you let you go. It's it's easier than show prep for me. Yeah, but man, the the uh, places where you you know they they punch punch in the the order, and then they they give it to you right next to the you know two feet away from where they punched in the order. They hand you the food. I'm like you 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 turn ninety degrees and hand me my food, and you want six dollars for that? Come on, man. Let's be real. That that's not a thing. All right. So what do you tip in that environment? A dollar is what I should tip. I don't do it because I'm on autopilot. But, you know, everyone tip a dollar. Let's change the damn system. Push back. Yeah. Let's let's unionize, guys. 
All right. Well, we're not going to unionize every diner in the city, but but people people should not feel guilty in in those kind of limited environments for only tipping a couple of bucks. Yeah, and then I do the the whole and you know I've complained about this the the thing where you have to stand in line, order, get your drinks, you pay, you get your drinks, you get your your condiments, then you sit down, and then there's a server. Yeah, this is the hop dotty model. Yeah, you know, now there's a server. And the only reason they have a server is because they want you to get out of that seat as fast as possible. Well, also, they want you to order a second round of drinks, typically. Yeah, so they want you to get more bar drinks, they want you to get a milkshake, and they want you to get the hell out of the seat as fast as possible whenever there's a, whenever it's busy. Uh, but it's awkward. You're like, well, do I need it? Did I tip enough the first time? Did I Do I need a tip again? Uh, sometimes the server will remind you we share tips, and it's like, well, I tipped up at the, the right. Register, I tipped at the. I've already you know. tipped. I already paid. But so, do you tip? You don't. Do you tip twenty percent in that environment where essentially where the server brings you your food and will get you a refill? Well, again, twenty percent, man. It's 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 automatic for me. But do you uh, think I other should, people? No, no, tip. I don't think. I think that's at most of fifteen percent. Uh, I'm I'm gonna have hop dotty employees track me down and murder me over this. But no, I, I think that should be a fifteen percenter because they're not they don't do what other servers are doing. You know, if I had a if I had a server at a sit down restaurant and then a server at a hop daddy restaurant, I could let them argue over who does more work. Right. Now the only other thing is that typically those restaurants like Hop Dottie are less expensive, so the difference between tipping fifteen percent and twenty percent is not that much money. I'm gonna disagree with you on that. Because how much is the burger and fries at Hop Daddy? It's what, 12, 15 bucks? Yeah. How much is the burger and fries at a normal restaurant? 12, 15 bucks? Well, I mean, like at Bernie's, it's probably about the same or, or Rodeo Goat that we're going to talk about here in a couple minutes. But that's full service. Exactly. So. Oh, so yeah. It's right. the same. So this, this, the cost is the same. Yes. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. So tip less at Hop Daddy than you would at Bernie's or the Rodeo Goat that we're about to mention because they do less work. All right. At least that's what the whole model was originally based on. Now you just give them money for existing and letting you eat there. <laughs> yes. I think, I think that's just called paying your check. All right. Uh, I hope people found this as fascinating as, as I have. Angry Nathan is maybe my favorite. Michael, movie. did you enjoy this? Michael's our... Uh... Th- thumbs up from producer Michael. All right, good. All right. What do you tip, Michael? Let's, let's go with that. Uh, like 15 to 20. 15 to 20? All right. All right. We'll, we'll work on we'll work on Michael in full service environments. Um, all right, let's dive into just a little bit of the news of the week briefly. Uh, we have a new we have a new upscale lounge in Montrose, Bar Victor. It replaced Zim's. This is the first of two new concepts from a couple a couple of French restaurateurs. I, I visited this place uh, recently with a friend of mine, and it kind of splits the difference between. Like cocktail bars and nightclubs, it's it's intimate, it's dark, but it's not it it's not like it it doesn't have like a big dance floor or anything like that. Uh, Nathan, I know that you are not a big bar guy and you haven't been to Bar Victor, but does this seem like the sort of thing that Houston will benefit from? It's in a good location uh, over there, the in the former Zim space. So yeah, I think they'll do well. Again. It's, I'm not a cocktail bar guy. If I do go to cocktail bars, I like Anvil types, kind of a chill environment, really good drinks. And frankly, when I do want cocktails, I just drink them at the bar at the restaurant that I go to. So that's kind of my thing. Or I go to a wine bar. Well, I will say I have seen a few friends celebrating there or, or checking it out. It looks like it's catching on a little bit. And, and I do think it's a nice addition to Montrose. I think it's, you know, I... I essentially never want to go to a nightclub. I, I know that obviously there's a lot of people who disagree with me. They fill those places every weekend. But there are times where I want a good cocktail in a nice environment, especially if I'm dressed up after dinner. Um, but maybe I don't want it to be as much about the bar where you're sitting there and watching the bartender shake drinks all the time. So I, I do like that kind of compromise. And, and I do think that it's a nice addition to the neighborhood. Yeah, it'll be a good... Uh uh, older tender people date place. Yes. And then um, I saw something that plays electronic music, but they're 
target audience is people in the 30s that feels a little weird to me but yeah well it's like low-key electronic music it's not like you know fist pumping oomph thump it's it's more like kind of bleeps and bloops and a little more low-key okay i don't know what that means but i'll i'll i'll, I'll believe you you'll know it when you hear it all, all right. right and then I, I think that we should note just briefly that underbelly has officially closed its last day of service was march 31st the restaurant space that was underbelly at 1100 Westheimer is going to give way to a steakhouse called Georgia and James. It's inspired by one fifth steak. And then Chris Shepard and Kevin Floyd are going to open UB preserve in the space that was previously Postcall and briefly Jimmy Chews. I don't think anyone's going to miss Jimmy Chews, but it's interesting that, most of the menu that was underbelly is not going to go to UB Preserve. It's going to be a new menu, uh, a new set of influences for Chris. Let me, Nathan, let me just put it to you like this. Are you excited to see what Chris Shepard does next, what this next evolution of underbelly is? So I always thought the whole animal thing that he did was very limiting. It forced him to do a lot of meat-centric, a lot of heavy things. So the fact that he's going away from that, and hopefully he can do a lot of um, kind of his Asian-centric or his uh, seafood-type dishes, which I think he's a lot better at, um, I think that's exciting. Um, so yes, I, I, I'm interested to see what he does there. I'm also interested to see, or I'm, I'm happy to see that you finally got a confirmation that uh, there will be no broiler at Georgia James and that he's going to do all cast iron. So that makes me a little more happy about the steakhouse concept. Yes. Yeah, we'll we'll have more to say about Georgia James, I think, as it gets closer. And, and UB Preserve will open up sometime in April. At least that's what they're saying. So we'll get a, a first taste in that and, and hopefully some more insight into, into that. But they have promised uh, Houston's Best Dumpling, which I'm excited about. I'm, yeah, I'm always be, down for new, for new and more and better dumplings. That will be interesting. Um I think if he really focuses on what he wants to do, because I know he that's what he did when he created Underbelly in the first place, but he got pigeonholed in a few few things. Um, so I think when, when chefs open or revamp their restaurant the second time, they get to, to look at their, their vision they had the first time and, and be like, man, this is what I want to do. I got this right. I didn't get this right. Let me focus on this part that I got right. And then a lot of times they really get to create a much better restaurant. So I, th I think the he's got a chance of creating something really cool. Yeah, and a, a more focused 80-seat underbelly that's only open for dinner, that's less concerned about, well, we can only source things from 200 miles and we have to have whole animal that, that has sort of fewer rules, I think will foster more creativity. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's still going to buy local and buy you know yeah but if he wants i don't know clams or something yeah the, it gives him a little bit more uh, flexibility in certain things and then obviously not buying whole animals really helps you be creative with the menu because uh, having you know a whole whole cow or having a multiple whole whole hogs really locks you into certain dishes at the menu so uh not doing that lets you be more creative and then the uh, you know supporting local farms, but you know not locking yourself into only doing that also helps you uh, be able to create fun dishes that he has the ability to do. All right, well that does it for the news of the week. We will be right back with our restaurant of the week. So stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating. So Nathan, for our restaurant of the week, I want to talk about. Rodeo Goat, as I mentioned previously, Rodeo Goat is the new burger joint that just opened up in the East Village development in East Downtown. That is the same complex that is already home to Chapman and Kirby, the very popular nightclub, Seaside Poke, the, uh, the very popular poke shop. They were on the show a few months ago, and that complex will soon be home to three new concepts from Cultivare Owners Agricole Hospitality. Uh, Rodeo Goat already has locations in Fort Worth and Dallas. They are known for 44 Farms Beef, 
that they grind in-house every day and a whole bunch of creative toppings. So Nathan, we eat a lot of burgers together. Uh, Houston has a lot of burgers. Is Rodeo Goat a good addition to the burger offerings in Houston? Yeah, before we went and ate there, you know, I complained that Houston is turning into steakhouses and burgers, nothing but steakhouses and burgers. But Radio Goat surprised me. It was better than I thought it would be. It was it was genuinely good, the burger I had. I had a burger called Nanny Goat. I would suggest trying it. Um, yeah, and talk about just for just quickly, like what makes that burger so special? So it was a, a goat cheese burger with a little bit of red onion. Um, and some beefsteak tomato. And I, they had, like, it didn't say it in the description, but there were, the beef patty either had herbs sprinkled on it or it was actually in the patty. Yeah, I think they were in the patty. I, I believe so, it. too, but I never got a, a answer from from whoever I asked. Uh, but it was very good. Um, the herb in the patty or on the patty really had a great flavor. It almost tasted like a what you expect a lamb burger to taste to, except it was beef and it was definitely beef but it had that kind of greek uh, infusion of herbs um the goat cheese was great the um onion kind of it, it tasted like a greek burger what you would expect and it was great the bun held up very well to the ridiculous amounts of juice pouring off of that burger um i'd explain it better but i inhaled it so quickly i didn't get a really good chance to um, that's true we were talking and all of a sudden your burger was gone yeah it, and it wasn't a small burger i just no, I, I asked. They are seven-ounce patties, and I had a sugar burger that was topped with grilled peaches, candied bacon, caramelized onions, and arugula that tries to cut some of the sweetness with a little bit of bitterness. And I just I just thought the flavors came together really well. A little, little smoky bacon, a little sweetness from the peaches. You know, I'm never going to complain about, about that particular flavor combination. And then my first visit, I had their Marvin Zindler burger, which has an onion ring and barbecue sauce and jalapenos and lettuce and tomato. And I, I've just been very impressed uh, both times with my visits to Rodeo Goat. And I, I will say, I think one of the things that they do that kind of helps make the experience is they have that open kitchen. And so when you walk in the front door, you can smell the burgers cooking and you can hear them sizzling on the griddle. And I think it just kind of whets your appetite and just makes you hungry. Yeah, it reminds me of walking into Greenway Plaza. Everything smells like Burger Chan. You just smell that beef. But yeah, the uh, I'm not normally the biggest large patty guy. I'm a, normally a big fan of the thin patty, and then I get two of them. You get that extra caramelization, um, the smash burger type. But these were the, you know, you said seven ounce, seven ounce larger patty. The caramelization was pretty good. It wasn't great. Uh, but it didn't matter. The burger was just insanely juicy. Um, yeah, I mean, our burgers... Had a flavor to it. Are, and, and I'll say, we went there on like their fifth day open. I thought our burgers were slightly overcooked, but still tasted really good. Yeah, you know, I I have found over the years that medium to maybe even slightly over medium burgers tend to be better when... All of the fat tends to render better. A medium rare burger, the fat doesn't render very well. So medium, maybe even medium well if you're feeling up to it. Uh, the fat renders better. The burgers we got at uh, Rodeo Goat were definitely on the the well done side, but that did not matter. They were juicier than probably any burger I've had in a very long time, um, at least that I can remember. Yeah, certainly. Off the top any, of my yeah, head. outside of like the a steakhouse burger at like Killen's STQ. Yeah, that's true. Um, I would say, and that's a that's a twenty dollar burger, and this is a ten dollar burger. So yeah, normally I just get a, a plain burger. I like I like my kind of standard hamburger, cheeseburger, bacon cheeseburger type of route because I really like to see the the beef shine through. Uh, with the the goat cheeseburger, they use forty four farms. That beef has a really striking flavor to it, so the beef really shone through that. The goat cheese had that nice tartness tartness to it the onions kind of helped uh cut that bite it was a fantastic burger yeah and it's a nice environment they had that big patio that's got a couple of different levels of seating on it and they had we didn't we went with milkshakes that they they used bluebell ice cream for which is always good it's some inexpensive cocktails and then it's the same company that owns the flying saucer 
So great craft beer selection in on draft and bottles and cans. Uh, I just I just think it's a it's a really good addition to Edo, and it's definitely going to crack my burger rotation. Yeah, I was I was I was ready to to dislike it because I'm ready to dislike virtually any new burger place because there's so many. But it was it was good. The fries were actually very good. They they do the little bit of herb stuff on the fries, which I'm never a fan of. But it it didn't shine. You know, it wasn't overwhelming in any way. But the fries themselves were were nice and caramelized, not overcooked, very crispy. Uh, still tender inside, very hard to do, especially in bulk. Uh, they remind me of the first time I had hubcap fries. Um, they were very good. All right, so that is open for lunch and dinner at the corner of Lamar and St. Emmanuel. That does it for our restaurant of the week. I will be right back with Alba Huerta. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Our interview this week is brought to you by 8th Wonder Brewery. So glad to have 8th Wonder back as a sponsor of the show. It really is one of my favorite local breweries. Their brewery in East Downtown that they call Wonder World is such a great place to hang out, especially now that the spring weather is here and all of the sports teams are kind of in, in full bloom. The Astros are back in season. The Dynamo have kicked off their season. And we're looking forward to a deep playoff run for the Rockets. Eighth Wonder is a really great place to go before the game for a couple of beers, maybe a bite from the E2 Boys food truck. And of course, you can find it on tap walls and shelves all over the city. They have the Vice Timer that's their new year-round beer. It's made the jump from a seasonal. And looking ahead, we can look forward to the return of Haterade, their Goza. So thank you to Eighth Wonder for sponsoring the show. And I'll be right back with our guest of the week. I'm joined this week by Alba Huerta, the owner of Julep, the highly acclaimed Southern-inspired cocktail bar on Washington Avenue. Alba, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk about Julep, and I want to talk about your new book that you just published, but I, I do kind of want to start at the beginning. Okay. I, I always do. I think when I met you, you were working... At Branch, well, or maybe even at Branchwater Tavern. Yeah. So how did you get? So how did you get started in bartending? Um. Well, it was much, much longer than the time that I met before I met you. Um, I started bartending when I was in college, and I was, uh, you know, I was a broke student, and I needed to get a job. So a friend of mine worked at a bar called the Timberwolf Pub. I ended up getting a job there, and then I, I, you know, it was I was a really, really bad bartender. I was just um, kind of one of those things where I got put in a position where somebody walked out, and I had to fill in kind of the this this position of just kind of be a body. So, um, and then I loved it. You know, I I never wanted to do anything else after after that. I always wanted to be in the service industry. And I continued with my studies, but kind of like as a sec- as a fallback plan. Like my studies were a fallback plan, and I I wasn't sure how or what I was going to do. But the service industry was definitely um, one that I wanted to stay in. Yeah, because I think by the time, whether it was at Branchwater or at or at Grand Prize, I mean you'd already kind of established your reputation as a rising talent, someone to watch. Um, when did you sign on at Anvil? Because I feel like that's kind of when your career took the next step. Um, that would have been 2011, and I think it was the spring of 2011. Um, if I look at the timeline, I was the opening GM for Grand Prize Bar, and I was there close to about a year. So that that makes that seems to be about the right. Okay. The right timeline. Sorry, it just ha- like so much, so many things happen so fast that I, like, I would have to actually look like at my W two and tell you when that was. <laughs> um, and then, and then, how did Julep come together? I mean, I, I know that it's it opened in in twenty fourteen, so this is <clears throat> this is not news exactly, but but how did how did you evolve within the company and working with Bobby and Kevin to get to the point where you were going to be tasked with opening your own bar? Well, at that time, um, 
So I was, uh, when I first came into to Anvil, pardon, um, I was there, they were starting um, Hay Merchant and Underbelly. And they kind of, they grew really fast. So that, that entire company grew really fast. There was a lot of time spent, like opening the, that concept in Blacksmith. Um, and then after that, there was some time to think about what the next project would be. And by then, I think I'd already had a few years with the company and just managing Anvil. So it seemed like a good progression at the time to do, um, to do Julep, to do the next bar, the next uh, cocktail bar. And, and there was an opportunity to take the space that was really um, nostalgic and really a really good match for that concept. But there was a lot of problems with it being... Um, historic building, maybe not problem, the word isn't problems, but just setbacks. And, and that caused for some delays, you know, so the, the lease was signed in 2012 of like, like June or like something like that. Um, late, late 2012. And then the, then the, it didn't really open until 2014. So it had two years of like sitting, sitting there waiting and um, trying to make all of these things happen. Um, and the concept actually really changed from, for those two years. I mean, you can imagine what it's like to have one, you, you, have a con- you have a concept and you have two years worth of time to change it. I mean, anybody who's ever opened a place would know. Um, where initially it wasn't, uh, you know, the, like as the, the concept kind of grew as it sat there waiting to develop. And, and that's kind of how that final concept came to be. Yeah, I mean, in the sort of the downtime between when Julep was announced and when it opened, I mean, you played a key role in opening the pastry war, yeah. right? That that, yeah, that killer frozen margarita recipe is is your drink. <laughs> That's my drink. Um, the so the the concept of down those the downtown concepts came about much rather easily though. Um, the construction of those places wasn't as heavy as the, as taking on a project like Julep that was an empty space. So I was, uh, I'm still one of the partners at the pastry war for one of the, you know, and I was the opening, um, I had the opening team there. Um, and that was probably the first time Bobby and I bartended together, you know, cause we both were opening this place and we, it was on a, it was on a much smaller budget. Um, it didn't really need a bigger budget. You know, we were turning over a space that already had most of the mechanics in it. And um, it just needed a really interesting, it just needed a really interesting um, beverage concept. So the drink concept was really right. Well, and it also needed kind of some personalities that would be a draw. Yeah. I mean, at the time, you know, when you, when you walk downtown on a Friday or Saturday night now, it's like, it's such a no brainer because all those places are super busy, but you know, five years ago, it wasn't obvious that mm-hmm. these empty storefronts were going to become a new nightlife district. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think at that time, the the hours that the bars were opening were still very scattered because there wasn't enough people going downtown on the days that it wasn't super busy, you know. Um, and then super busy is still, like, not necessarily <laughs> busy. So uh, it took some time, but downtown has done a really nice, especially in that 300 block. Um, there's been some really great, um, like life brought back to that part of that part of downtown. So, all right. So how did the concept for Julep evolve in this sort of downtime while you worked out the construction issues? There's, you know, there's, uh, some in my, in my own personal career, when I, um, I became really involved in the Southern Foodways Alliance and it kind of put a lot of perspective into, um, what uh, the the southern sensibilities of a concept would be, you know, because it's really easy to look at a, a like at a southern food restaurant and say, well, you know, you have southern food that's okra and this and you know pickled this and right. you know, et cetera, it's, it's et cetera. grits and fried chicken and right, and it's know. really easy to look at a restaurant and say, well, this is a southern restaurant, but how do you do that with a bar? Um, and so becoming more involved in that organization. And uh, now I'm a, I'm a board member of, of the organization, which I'm really happy and proud to be on that board. Um, it, it developed more of an identity of what it was that we were trying to project. 
Yeah, and so I, I actually I, I mean I, I did want to ask you about your involvement in the the Southern Foodways Alliance because it is this kind of regional organization that has this great national reputation. And I I don't know, I think it's it's very well known in the food world, and I'm not sure how well known it is outside of it, but it is an organization that is trying to promote like a broader definition of what it means to be Southern, mm-hmm. especially in the 21st century. And so I was actually, could you just talk a little bit about kind of what your role has been in helping the SFA sort of expand what it means to be Southern? You know, I think, um, I don't know of how direct my role is in that, but I, but I'll tell you what my involvement has been. Um, and the, the organization is very progressive and it's incredibly, uh, forward thinking. Um, it's, it's basically looking at what the new American South is and being very, you know, looking at, looking at it through food ways. So if you do that and you explore the American South, you realize that it's, a it's a place full of immigrants and it's a place full of um, diversity and it has a lot of international influence, but still through the scope and the lens of Southern food. So I can't tell you that I did that, but I can tell you that I am a part of uh, this group that's very much embracing identities like myself that are um, looking through you know, we're, we're, we look at our we look at our communities and we look at our and our resources and we we think of we we acknowledge the southern sensibilities in the bar. So you'll if you even if you look at the program, you won't find things that are like iconically quote unquote southern, but the sensibilities are there and that's really important. Um, but the so so back to the SFA. Sorry, I digress. Um, it is a you know it's it's a very evolving. It's it's this idea of an evolving American South, and um, and we explore it through food, personalities, stories. If you ever have a chance and you, you you have a box of Kleenex next to you, go ahead and look at all the SFA films that have been produced in the last couple of years. They're amazing. They're filled with uh, characters that are heartfelt and honest and genuine and. Um, it really puts it really put my heart in perspective. So that's what happened during the time that I that I was opening Julep. It really I, I my network grew to understand um, what a southern regional cocktail bar what I wanted it to be. So then you've opened Julep, and and I mean I remember there were you know four or five juleps on the menu. There were Sazeracs and other New Orleans cocktails on the menu, and 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 just an epic back wall of bourbon how has the concept sort of evolved over the almost four years that you've been open well i think there's a so with the opening menu there's always a statement that needs to be made and that's with anyone whether you're open a restaurant or a bar you know you have your opening menu that's going to define um it's basically telling introducing yourself to 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 an audience and saying you know, this is what we this is what we want to do. How do you feel about it? And uh, with the response that you get from your audience, you you start to develop for, uh, future menus, and you also keep in perspective your concept. You know, so um, the and what what it, what ended up what culminated eventually into a book, and it wasn't originally supposed to be was the series of menus that were created to explain what a southern regional cocktail bar is because honestly there was no such definition you know so um there was the opening menu which was the one where we want we want you to fall in love with us so we had we had uh, some like we'll just call them like hits like there's still drinks on that menu from that menu that we haven't been able to change because i think some people might really get upset with us so um so from there, the involvement was about defining the concept. And, um, and it took three series of menus of saying, you know, you're taking this word Southern, you're applying it to a cocktail bar. How do we, how do we go from there? Right. And, and even maybe more importantly, like, how is a Southern cocktail bar different from Other a non-Southern bar. cocktail mm-hmm. bar, right? Like, how's it different than Anvil would be the most obvious comparison. Right. I mean, that was that was also that that playing that how, like, how do you how do you how, what side of the line are you are you, you know, you're playing on. And and it's also very difficult to do. Um, 
I mean, and we did it through a, a number of different ways. We did it through uh, ingredients. Key ingredients were first. They were very. They played a huge role in in stories. The stories that we told with the with the with the uh, with the way we created these ingredients, like the cherry bounce, has a really has a really um, has a really good story. And I also, you know, I wouldn't say that necessarily there aren't any Southern sensibilities in a bar like Anvil. Like, I wouldn't say that either because it's hard, you know, like even when I was in that program, I saw some really great additions that were, that were super creative. Like, um, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's hard to say you are and you aren't because those lines are a little blurred, but we took it specifically to the, to, to define a region, a description of, of ingredients, uh, an influence of ingredients and, and it just made it more in perspective of the concept rather than um, just drawing from classics. And we were trying to create iconic drinks that were mostly Southern, you know, because it's not something that we could have, that we, we, we still can't continue to, it's not, a, it's not something that you can continue to do for a very long time because there's, a, there's only a, a, so many Southern cocktails that you could draw from. So evolving the concept has been... Um, has been more thematic lately than you know, and and also with with the same key ingredients that we've that we've always played with before. All right, so you said you didn't set out to write a book Correct. necessarily, but you have just published a book. Yeah. So how did you? How did that? How did the idea for a book come together? And and what about it uh, <laughs> made it seem like the right thing to do? Well, the you know, and I I. I'll be honest, there's, you know, the, before the book even, uh, before the, these menus were even written, there's, there's always somebody trying to publish a book for you. And that's, that's not rare to most people that own bars. Like there's, there's always somebody asking about like what you do is really cool. Maybe you should write a book because there's a whole other, um, industry that writes books, (laughs) you know? And, uh, and so I had a few, with our with our opening menu, uh, that press release went out, and I had immediately had somebody asking to write a book, and I was like, I don't, I don't have a book to write. <laughs> there's nothing. There's nothing. There's n- we just opened, you know. Right. We just um, make drinks. We just make drinks right now, um, and also not just that. Like I can't afford to have another job. <laughs> like I, right now, we're just open. I'm doing several jobs. I do not want to become. There's no way this is happening. Um, there's no way you're going to get me to sit down in front of a computer. <laughs> Um, that's the first time that, 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 that came to be. And then that, that happened several times. I eventually, um, over the course of those conversations, I found, uh, Lorena Jones, who my book is published under Lorena Jones at 10 speed. And Lorena Jones is a, also a member of the Southern Foodways. So she and I had several conversations before we ever, you know, throughout over the years that, that we, that we participated in the SFA, um, where we didn't, where I wouldn't necessarily agree to a book, but I kind of like the idea. And, um, but you know, my question to her and was always, how, what are we going to write? What are we going to write about? Are we going to make another cocktail book that just sits on people's shelves? Is this going to be, you know, I don't necessarily think I have anything to add to that, to that, um, conversation. So. Right. Because it just seems like there's a lot of cocktail recipe books, and also cocktail books built around famous bars. I mean, if you look at the, you know, if, if, if a bar has a bookshelf, right, the employees only book is probably on it. The PDT book is, is the death probably and Co. on it. Yeah. The death and co book is probably on it. Um, I hear the nomad is putting out a really beautiful book. So I'm really excited about that one. That seems like the kind of bar that would. Yeah. So, so then how did you come up with a concept that would, be like it's stand on its own and and sort of withstand comparisons to those kind of books that are that have become very popular well and you know after these conversations um it you know it it and once we finished our our fourth menu it became really clear that there was something there (laughs) you know it was kind of like oh this is the book you know um so i contact lorena jones and by then um, I'd met David Black, who is an, a book agent, and he became the he became the 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 really the catalyst for all of it. So um, he organized, you know, all of the all of the 
back-end work that I wouldn't have been able to do it by myself. So David Black is really the reason why we, there's a book out there. He's brilliant. Uh, he's a brilliant agent, and he put together this contract of of how this book was going to be, um, you know, what it was going to look like, what it was going to what it was going to say, um, and everybody agreed to it. And there, you know, and all we did was uh, turn over recipes and photography and images, and and it, the book itself took about a year and a half after that after signing and um and it's it's really you know it's hard work it's uh it's like going through it and thinking how is someone going to build this recipe or how is someone going to read this recipe or does that word sound silly or you know and it's it's a daily it's the daily grind of like all the office work I didn't do in my entire life because I decided to bartend I did it in a year and a half and I <laughs> and I it came out of it and when people were like I haven't seen you in a year and a half it's like I know I know I all right, a so, day job for you so so give us the nuts and bolts I mean how many how many cocktail recipes are in the book and, and what are some of your, I mean, there's the cherry bounce sour, there's the sparkling julep. I mean, there's some, there's some recipes that are very closely <coughs> associated with julep. I mean, what are, what can people expect if they buy the book? The book itself is, um, well, you know, so one of the things that I pride myself in is that it's filled with a lot of stories. So it's not just stories about the drink. It's stories about what inspired the drink and what, you know, like, if, if visionaries or people or places, um, I think that's a really interesting. Like just reading it as a as a story is a good is a good uh, it's a good book for that. Um, it's also really good for entertaining. So I decided to add some f- uh, some of our bar snacks. Um, our first our first couple of food menus were done by Madeline uh, Madeline Hurd, who used to be Madeline Cabazut. She used to work at um, at Underbelly. And she put together these great, um, you know, salads and deviled eggs and whatnot. And so those got included in the book also just to kind of make it a more uh, a more appealing book for entertaining. Um, and for the, like, the hits, yeah, the, the book is filled with, like, what we would call, like, the hits, like the Snake Bit Sprout, the Cherry Bound Sour, um, the... The sparkling julep is one that you know that has always been very very well received, um, and all of those stories, all those all those cocktails have some really interesting uh, beginnings. And I think that that overall the book, I'm very proud of it. I'm very uh, I'm also f- was shot by Julie Sofer, who's an amazing photographer, and uh, and we could have put together a great book, but she made it look fabulous. You know, she's like she she did that all on her own. It's she did a great job. Yeah, I mean, I, I think anyone who reads Culture Map, you see her work. Mm-hmm. all the time because she's one of the most popular people that Houston bars and restaurants like to hire for beautiful images of, of food and drink. Yeah. She's incredibly talented. And we also, she and I have a really, really good story before Julep opened. She came with me to, and we just met, we'd met, we'd only known each other for a couple of weeks. And I was like, Hey, do you want to go to Kentucky and pick a barrel of whiskey? And she's like, yeah. So we ended up in Kentucky for a few days and she was a blast. You know, we just, we just became like really close friends, and and uh, and yeah, she did a she did a fabulous job. She and Amanda Metzger, who uh, styled the book, all of these things that you like, we just take you know would have taken for granted, like a book stylist. I'm like, okay, <laughs> but you, you mean like someone who makes the words look pretty on the page? Well, no, no, that was ten speed. I mean, somebody who styled the photography. Oh, who okay. styled. Uh, sure. I mean, it's. I was just. I, I was just mesmerized with their with their talent. All right, so let me let me shift gears just slightly because Julep has been right in the middle of the growing interest in bourbon. Like you said, you've you've purchased barrels uh, for the bar. Are you still doing that? I mean, is that still kind of how does how do how does a bourbon bar stand out in a city with? Seems like every year there's like a new one that opens up with two hundred bourbons on the back bar. Yeah, I mean that's a actually that's a really good question. The um, the concept of of I mean bourbon. I don't know. I think it's Karen Newman just printed out today. Put out a, an article of like, does all brown water taste the same? <laughs> and uh, I was like, yes. Thank you for somebody. Somebody's finally talking about this. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of whiskey out there. Um, it's not always you know it it, it all comes from different places, um, but the the word standout is tough. I just don't think that in I don't think that in this region there's going to be a standout of whiskey bars. I think that's just going to be a, a you know part of everybody's program. I don't 
I don't, I think that's your clientele defining what, you know, what you need to carry. And like, if I opened up a gin bar, like, I don't know how that, you know, I don't know. I don't know how well received I would be in this part of, you know, this part of Texas. But um, I think that the, you know, to continue to, to, to grow the, the cocktail program ultimately is always what our bread and butter. You know, we, we do have whiskeys on the back shelf, but the, but the cocktails pay the bills and we make sure that those are always, um, you know, they, that they represent different palettes and that they're, that they're very thoughtful. The other thing I've noticed about you just follow, from following along on, on Instagram is that you seem to travel quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were just in Denmark. I was, I was at a, a convention called Para Bere Forum. So I was in, um, I was in Malmo. And I was there for, it's an international women's culinary group. Um, And the topic of discussion this year was, uh, how will we be edible cities in the year 2050 as we're, as population grows and we're trying to figure out our food ways. So it was this very fascinating two days filled with, um, with people like Laura T. Gilmore and just people talking about different kinds of social programs and um and their and their attributes to their particular cities and like their the their additions to to how to how to be able to work out the the problems of our foodways in the future so are we are we totally screwed um i think that we have a lot of time to think about that uh you know in our lifetime if we happen to live that long uh we will see, you know, we will have to start thinking about how, because cities are growing, you know, and we're, you'll, you'll notice that um, just by stepping out and what, looking, looking out to construction every day. Um, but the thought process behind how we will feed our community is very, is, it's something that needs to be brought to light. And, um, and I was very uh, fortunate to experience that over that, over the course of two days in Sweden. So you've got Julep to the point now where it's a stable, you know, part of the Houston drinking and dining landscape. I think you're my first guest who's been on the cover of Texas Monthly. Um, so clearly, and, and you have these kind of regional interests, you have, you have all these connections. I mean, do you think about opening another bar? I mean, do you think about kind of what's next? I think about what's next. I can honestly tell you I don't think about opening another bar. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's a joy to own a bar. I mean, it's it's just not it's honestly not something that I think about. It's um it's always something that gets brought to me by other people and I'm, it, it, there's there's other interests in this in the scope. So All right. So so what do you think? So what does intrigue you at this point? What what do you want to do? Um I mean, it's, you know, it's also, there's so much work that, that I can, that, you know, we can create out of this one bar, honestly, like there's, um, there's like, no, that the idea of like having to have multiple concepts, I don't, I don't think that's the way to, that's the only way to continue to be in this industry. You know, I think that there's a lot of opportunities, particularly for, um, for creating uh whether it's products or like i just had somebody talk to me about doing a cherry bounce um you know product and things like that so um there's other opportunities that aren't just about creating another space but that's not necessarily out of the question it's just that you know putting like the last huge uh i guess the last thing that i was that, that i had you know uh planned for was the launch of the book and then i'm here and i'm like yay <laughs> so right. i have a, right so now you have free time again and so now you of, need a new project sort of but i have a it's a nationally published book so i have a book tour oh. uh, so 10 speed so yeah it's it's nationally published with 10 speed so we're everywhere in the country i mean i had somebody um somebody tagged me from Italy the other day and they're like, Hey, I got your book. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Um, so there's a book tour in the next, you know, in the next year or so. And, uh, and there's some really great, uh, collaborations with, with, you know, with that here in the next year. Um, but you know, that's, 
that's it. That's pretty much it. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings me to the end of my questions, which means it's time for what I like to call the lightning round. Okay. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. All right. Alba, what's your favorite ingredient? Cider. What's the first band you ever saw in concert? <laughs> Millie Vanilli. <laughs> it doesn't count. It wasn't real. <laughs> you paid for it. You, it what's your fast food guilty pleasure that comes from a drive-thru? Ooh, Chick-fil-A. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Oh, man. Altuve, for sure. And where's your favorite place to get a taco? Uh, Tierra Caliente. Always a great answer. Alba, we can follow you on Instagram at Alba Works It. We can follow Julep on Instagram at Julep H-O-U. And of course, you have Derby Day coming up. It's always a good time at Julep. Yeah, this year it's on the 5th, so it's going to be on uh, Cinco de Mayo. And it's going to be Derby Day, so we're, we have something really special planned. All right, and I will thank uh, my co-host for the week, Nathan Ketchum. You can follow him on Twitter at H-Town Food Junkie. You can follow me on Twitter at E. Sandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.